Welcome to the Human Capital Innovations Podcast, where your source for personal, professional, and organizational growth and development, where we share original research, explore industry trends, and interview executives and thought leaders from across the globe. We hope you join us often for practitioner-oriented content around all things related to leadership, HR, talent management, organizational development, and change management. Maximize your personal and organizational potential with Human Capital Innovations Podcast. Do you enjoy the Human Capital Innovations Podcast? Enjoy ad-free listening by going to the Patreon page, and please consider contributing even at the producer or sponsorship level. And please leave a review. Thank you for your support. Welcome to the Human Capital Innovations Podcast. In this HCI podcast episode, I talk with Judith Carlson about creating spaces that accommodate a neurodiverse workforce. Judith Carlson, welcome to the Human Capital Innovations Podcast. Thank you very much. It is a pleasure to have you. You're joining us from, I think you said the Atlanta area, didn't you? Yes, I did. Yes, wonderful. I love that area. I first visited Atlanta the winter before the uh, Atlanta Olympics uh, back in the 90s. Um, So that was my very first time as a teenager. I loved the city then. I've, I've loved it every time I visited since. Uh, Pleasure to have you. Today, we're going to be talking about creating spaces that accommodate a neurodiverse workforce. And I think this is an increasingly important topic that honestly not isn't getting enough attention. I I actually uh, am a researcher in this space. Um, It's kind of a tangential piece of the research I do at the university. um, But I look at autism in the workplace and how to provide greater levels of accommodation uh, for those on the spectrum. Uh, and in hiring practices, et cetera. And there's kind of a dearth of this research. Like there's not a ton out there on it. And there's a lot I think we need to be doing um, to to address these issues. So I'm really excited to pick your brain and learn from you today as we talk about this topic. As we get started, I wanted to share Judith's bio with everybody. Judith Carlson, Workplace Strategy Manager of Ted Moody's Associates, strives to create thoughtful and inclusive workplaces that supports the needs of the entire team. As an advocate of sustainable design practices, Judith pays close attention to creating spaces that accommodate a neurodiverse workforce, considering the range of needs for the emotional and mental well-being of a company's staff. This can include accessibility for neurodiverse workers, flexible orientation to adapt to the needs of the individual, noise level options, biophilic design to promote calm and productivity, and others. I'm super excited, Judith, to talk more about this. Anything else you would like to share by way of your background or personal context before we just dive on in? Um, no, I've I've been, you know, I'm have a background in interior design. Um, kind of came out of school during um, the the recession of the late aughts, and uh, being the daughter of an economist, my dad said, you know, you better have something to back you up. Um, interior design might not always pay your bills. Um, and so I've always tried um, to take my passion for design and working at an architecture firm 
and layer that with anything that I can learn that goes above and beyond, you know, that just the, the kind of, um, what everyone thinks of as interior design and really try to bring value to a space and value to the career as a whole. Um, because I don't think that it is um, something that's paid enough attention to. Um, and and I really feel like, and I hope that that's changing. Yeah, me too. Me too. And just a personal connection. My daughter is a college freshman. She's an architecture major. She hasn't chosen what her area of specialty will be, um, but I'm sure she will find um, your background, very interesting as she's kind of in that mode of exploring what she wants to do. Uh, that's neither here nor there, but just a, a connection point for, as we're having this conversation. Well, as we get started, maybe you could, you could begin by just defining for us neurodiversity. Uh, I'm hoping that most people are familiar with that term, but I suspect there are some that, you know, kind of aware of what that is, but not quite sure. Uh, maybe, explain that a little bit, provide some examples, and then we can get into a brief description about neuroarchitecture. Absolutely. So neurodiversity in the broadest sense to me is kind of the understanding that people think differently. Um, and again, there's, you know, there's a lot of research done on this and I, I'm by no means an expert on neurodiversity, um, but Really, it just means taking into account that, you know, there's a certain part of the population that thinks differently, may need extra time or, you know, is is on the spectrum of autism or kind of their reaction or feelings and interpretations of the environment around them um, that can affect them personally um, in an emotional response um, or a neurological response. Autism spectrum is... is the most common form of neurodiversity that, you know, people tend to think about when they're uh, using that phrase. Um, but there, there, it really is a wide spectrum. There's a, a lot of different, um, kind of what, what would you, what would you call it? There's, there's a lot of different, um, ways that people, uh, function, uh, within, you know, a, a neurotypical world. And, and so finding ways, you know, that we can adjust workspaces, workplaces and work design generally, uh, to accommodate what really is an increasing number of people that self-identify on the spectrum, um, I think it's it's going to be to the benefit not only of those individuals, of course, but also to their teams and to the organizations as a whole. Absolutely. So I use this um, experiment or this explanation quite frequently. My daughter um, it just started kindergarten and she um, goes to a school that is very, you know, thought forward about all of this. And in her kindergarten classroom, there are three different table setups. There's a, um, a tall standing height table. There's a table with, you know, the normal chairs. There's a circular table that has these small cushions on the floor. Um, and every morning the kids start out on the rug, you know, for their morning meeting. And then the teachers explain what's going to happen next. And they say to the children, find a space that you feel comfortable in order to do this next task. And they are free to choose any of these three settings as well as, you know, whatever other space that they might feel most comfortable with inside of the classroom. And I think it's the most brilliant idea to set these young children up with the autonomy to be able to select spaces 
where they feel that they can be most productive and where they feel most comfortable to accomplish whatever task is happening. And, you know, they're able to move throughout the space freely. So if they choose a space that isn't necessarily conducive to what they want to be doing, they're able to move and they have that, that choice in doing that. And I think it's, it's so important to really think about that and, and provide everyone, you know, those neurodiverse who identify those who don't just, just spaces in which they feel comfortable and able to be a productive member of an organization. The world is built, you know, for people like me. I'm neurotypical. I'm a straight cisgender white dude. Um, and, you know, I so I have all the layers of privilege. The world and the systems in which we function were built for people like me. So whether we're talking about neurodiversity or any other form of diversity, um, race, gender, ethnicity, whatever, you can name all the different things. Um, in each case, we we talk a lot about inclusion and we, we talk about trying to create uh, an inclusive environment of genuine belonging for every individual so that they can bring their whole authentic self to the workplace and contribute in meaningful ways. And so we talk a lot about race, gender, ethnicity, um, uh, gender identification and sexual preference and all of these different categories. The one that we don't talk about nearly as much is neurodiversity and uh, people who are on the spectrum um, can be highly functioning, you know, individuals, very, very intelligent, very capable, lots of skills. Uh, they have a lot to add to organizations Yet the way the systems are set up, it often uh, disproportionately negatively impacts those individuals. So, for example, let's just think about hiring practices for a minute. Uh, we know, you know, that hiring in the hiring practices is fraught anyways to try to weed out bias and and uh, be inclusive and such. Uh, but in the best case scenario, it's still almost a crapshoot because people are so bad at interviewing. Um right. I, and I'm speaking from the organization side. So leaders, organizational managers, hiring managers tend to be pretty crummy at conducting meaningful interviews that actually uncover the types of information that are going to help them make good, reasonable decisions uh, in the best of circumstances, uh, assuming that we're not dealing with unique issues with different people. Um, but you you bring into to the interview setting someone uh, on the spectrum and the, they just interact differently. And in many ways, they interact in ways that might be a little bit sometimes off-putting to an interviewer, uh, regardless of, of what their actual skill set is, their capabilities, their competencies, what they could actually bring to the team. And so what we end up doing is disproportionately weeding people out from the get-go, from the very earliest stages of the screening process and the interviewing process, we weed people out who have lots of great skills simply because they're not comfortable making eye contact with somebody or name the thing, right? And right. and how much do those things really matter is the question and the point. And, and the reality is research has shown it doesn't actually matter all that much at all, yet it disproportionately impacts hiring decisions. And that's just one little example. Once someone goes, jumps through those hoops and they actually get hired and they're working in an organization. Now there's all these other um, obstacles and roadblocks they're going to have to navigate to try to 
find success in that organization. And it's not easy. Uh, and so let's let's look proactively look for ways to provide accommodations uh, so we can ha- truly have a more inclusive workplace for those who are who aren't neurotypical. Absolutely. And I think, you know, a lot of that goes into the design of a space where, you know, you're interviewing or creating spaces that are comfortable for anyone, again, on the spectrum or, you know, anyone who is different from, you know, a a cisgender white man. I am, you know, also obviously a, a cisgender white female and have been brought up with an immense amount of privilege as well. And it's, it's thinking through, you know, all of the, all of the, it's, it's very difficult to think through um, taking all of those privileges away, right? But understanding and really empathizing with individuals on that end user level and what they may be experiencing by reading, researching, and kind of designing then spaces to support them, even when they are coming in for an interview. So let's let's talk about a comfortable space or, you know, how we would how we would thoughtfully design a space for kind of someone on the spectrum coming into the office. And first we would want to disarm them, right? We want to to create a space where they're not coming in and feeling, you know, bright lights shining on them, which may be a trigger. Um, you know, we want to make sure the temperature is comfortable. We want to make sure that, you know, they're, they feel very comfortable in the space and supported by the work environment. You know, we may want to guide them through an office to um, an interview room where the lighting is a little bit dimmer, where the colors on the walls are a little bit richer um, and and feel more enveloping to really detract from the fact that they may not be giving you as much direct eye contact, but it feels as it feels warmer. It feels a space where you can really have um, an engaging conversation and let your guard down. You know, you want to ensure that the acoustics of the room aren't reverberative or echoey um, to really set off, you know, an emotional response that way. Um, and just thinking about spaces for refuge. And again, we're talking about bringing them into a space, into an interview. And, you know, this goes beyond into interview tactics. You know, I'm sure there's been research done and, you know, would love to follow up with that about, you know, different questions and different ways to engage this um, part of the population. Um, but really, it also goes to creating an office environment and a work environment that will support them when they do come on board, right? So we wanna bring these people into organizations because there's nothing that they can't contribute that you know a, a normal cisgender person can, can contribute as well. Um, and, and I think that that's really valuable um, and providing spaces where they can feel comfortable during the day to work and be productive is also very important. And again, you know, I I don't identify as on the spectrum myself. However, there there are areas and ways where I'm most productive, as I'm sure the same can be said for you too, right? So there's, you know, I am not one of those people that can go into a Starbucks and get heads down work done and feel like energized by all of the activity around me um, and 
And my, my first boss at Ted Moodis was, you know, he was the kind of guy where he amazing, just, you know, but give him an active environment and he will produce the most, you know, thoughtful, uh, programmatic and, and workplace strategy programs you could ever think of. Me, I, I prefer either to collaborate with a team and sit with a small group of people and exchange ideas in an, in a space where, you know, that's the purpose. And then I like to go into, you know, a, a focus area. It doesn't mean I can't have visual distraction. Doesn't mean that there can't be light noise. But in order for me to focus or write and be thoughtful about my approach, I need to I need to ensure that my level of distraction is is not peaked. So, you know, again, on the spectrum or not on the spectrum, we're all individual and have these these preferences or ways that we work best. And it's so important today to design spaces to meet the needs of a diverse population um, of of yeah. human beings. Yeah, that's a really great point. It reminds me. So I'm a professor uh, and I do consulting work in, in this podcast and things like that. But in, in at the university, we have a brand new business building, a uh, beautiful new building. Um, and we love it. it. It's open, light, airy, you know, all those things really great in a lot of ways. Um, but all of the offices are fishbowls. They're all glass <laughs> and, and there's students walking around. It's, it's, it's ideal for students. It's open flow, lots of collaborative spaces, um, accessibility to professors. But what I've heard repeatedly from many professors, many of which, you know, really prefer kind of a focus area to do their work is they're so incredibly distracted constantly from, um, you know, not students coming and knocking on their door, wanting to talk to them, but just students randomly walking by going anywhere because it's all glass. Um, so right. it looks beautiful. It's, it's great for the students, not so great for, for the, the professors who are trying to focus, do deep focused work, um, or at least for some of them, you know, who have complained about it. And it's just an illustration of, of your point. Now, the people I'm thinking of who have very vocally complained about it, I don't think any of them identify as um, on the spectrum at all. Uh, yet they still have that preference. They know how they're going to be most productive. And we all have those different ways of working. And so providing a little bit more options, I think will be really important for any organization, excuse me, for any organization, regardless of whether we're talking about a business school at a university or a tech startup or uh, whatever, you know, name whatever the organization might be, um, we have opportunities. And you've laid out some good examples, you know, with the kindergarten classroom and the tables and the the different work areas uh, with the color and visual stimulation and the lighting, uh, the noise stimulation, all those sorts of things are different aspects that we can really think about for how um, we create the environment in which people get work done. Um, there's this term biophilic. Can you explain mm -hmm. that? and explain how biophilic design can be leveraged to foster wellness overall. Absolutely. So biophilia is the practice of bringing natural elements and um, design into interior spaces. So it can be accomplished in a multitude of ways. Um, you know, the the easiest is, you know, bringing daylight and views. 
So from wherever you're sitting in an office, can you see outside? Can you see natural daylight? Um, and how does that affect you and you know your productivity within a space? Um, additionally, um, you know, it can, so it starts there and it can go all the way to, you know, using reclaimed woods, natural materials in the office space um, to just patterning in the floors or treatments on a ceiling that allows a light to have a dappled feel. Um, we have a client in Connecticut who um, said, you know, let's build a spa room. Let's really like create this space that, you know, can feel relaxing and has all of these natural elements. And, you know, our design team challenged that and said, instead of creating a room where someone has to go in and experience that, and it can only be experienced by, you know, one or two people, let's, let's highlight that and let's put it in, you know, the, the central piece of your office. So we brought a tree in, there are, there's a rock scape, there's natural plantings all within the interior of the office. And in addition to that, there's a water feature. So it adds to the ambient noise. Um, it adds to the natural feel of the space and it gives you, you know, it's it really is the embodiment of biophilic design in an office space. You're able to experience these natural elements However, you do have the creature comforts of being in an office. So while the space is in Connecticut and, you know, it's 20 degrees outside, you're able to experience the natural elements at, you know, a, a balmy 70 degrees. Um, and so it's really kind of thinking through those elements and how people interact with them and how they can slow your natural heart rate. They can bring a sense of calm to a space. Um, and leveraging that to increase employee wellness, employee engagement, um, and employee interaction. It, it becomes a space where people feel comfortable and comfortable spaces, people naturally gravitate into those environments. Yeah. And, and you just tend to be more productive, more creative, more innovative when you're in those types of environments. Um, and this is a silly example. It's not directly related to what we're talking about, um, but it, it it's how I work well. So I know that about myself. Everyone has their own um, preferences and you learn over time how you're going to be most effective. And so I have a fun office. Uh, I have a distracting office um, because not because I'm distracted all the time, but actually because I want to try to distract myself because I get too focused. I get two heads down and I'll like all of a sudden spend five hours straight, like hyper-focused doing something before I even realize five hours has gone by. And so I try like to visually create distractions in my office so that I can take little mental breaks and remind myself, oh, I need to get up and walk around, like those kinds of things. And and I like just the funness of it, uh, even if you know, people often walk into my office and they're like, do you ever get any work done or are you just playing all the time? <laughs> I'm like, actually... That's the problem. I'm always working. And I the, this is kind of my approach that I've adapted adopted over time so that I can find healthy ways uh to to uh get a little bit of those distractions and, and practice a little bit more balance and uh, for my own physical and mental health. Now that's just a silly example for me. The reality is we all have that for ourselves, right? And so we need to have the flexibility within our workplace to be able to uh to be able to create up. To, to create an environment where we can work and be more, our most effective and productive 
uh, I think that's what everyone wants. So in this case, we're talking specifically about neurodiversity. We're talking about uh, neuroarchitecture and a lot of different design elements. Um, but if we zoom out and we just think about it more broadly, just about flexibility and options in in terms of design, work design, office design, space design, and how everyone can be most effective, you know, it's a no-brainer. I think every organization should be thinking about this. And then if we zoom back in, of course, from an inclus inclusivity and belonging standpoint, uh, we need to be paying attention to neurodiversity and we need to be finding ways uh, to make our organizations much more welcoming. Absolutely. And, you know, I, I think about this and, you know, your, your daughter, as she's going through architecture school, I always think about, you know, the difference between residential architecture and design and corporate architecture and design. Um, I am so fulfilled by the work that I do at Ted Moodis Associates and with our clients. And it's partially because, you know, Residential interior designers are designing to meet the individual needs of of one group of people, right? The owners of of one home. Let's let's create a design that meets their needs. When you get to work with an organization that has hundreds, thousands of people, taking all of that data and all of that information and all of those individuals, we don't there are no two homes in the world that are the same. So how do we expect to create a one-size-fits-all office with a one-size-fits-all desk, a one-size-fits-all office to, to meet the needs of the entire population? And that's what makes this work so fulfilling and so wonderful that you get to experience all of the humans that the world has to offer and help to develop yeah. space that makes them all feel engaged and productive and safe and welcomed. Yeah. Yeah. Well said. Well, Judith, this has just been a real pleasure. I know the time and I need to let you go, but before we wrap things up for today, I just wanted to give you a chance to briefly share with the audience, how they can get connected with you, find out more about your work, and then give us the final word on the topic for today. Absolutely. Um, my email address is jcarlson at tedmudis.com. That's T-E-D-M-O-U-D-I-S. Um, and our website is tedmudis.com. Um, and uh, we are hopefully looking forward to producing a, a post-COVID um, document about what's been happening in the workplace. Um that will be issued as a white paper in the near future. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Judith. It has been a real pleasure. I encourage the audience to reach out, get connected, find out more about what Judith and her team can do for you. And as always, I hope everyone can stay healthy and safe, that you can find meaning and purpose at work each and every day. And I hope you all have a great week. Do you enjoy the Human Capital Innovations Podcast? Enjoy ad-free listening by going to the Patreon page and please consider contributing even at the producer or sponsorship level. And please leave a review. Thank you for your support. Thanks again for joining us for this episode of the Human Capital Innovations Podcast. I hope you stay healthy and safe and that you have a great week.